I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything, yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's, it's so real to this day. I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? (laughs) We did it guys. One that came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Water, one of the most important elements to human life. Without it, a person can only survive for three days. Today, seven in 10 people in the world have access to safely managed drinking water service But what if you woke up one day and no longer had access to water? In 2018, Cape Town, South Africa, was on a path to becoming the first big city in the modern era to run out of water. It was known as Day Zero, the day the government would have to step in to indefinitely shut off its water supply to ration reserves. As conversations of Day Zero swirled and the threat of running out of water loomed near, Citizens adjusted daily habits, cutting their usage by half and postponing day zero indefinitely. However, this crisis isn't unique. Sao Paulo, Melbourne, Jakarta, London, Beijing, Istanbul, Tokyo, Bangalore, Barcelona, Mexico City, and California in the United States all struggle with a similar crisis. Water has a significant value Beyond drinking, water is also a critical component of sanitation. Unfortunately, 4.5 billion people, more than half of the world's population, do not have safely managed sanitation systems. By 2040, most of the world won't have enough water to meet demand year-round. In this episode, we'll explore how we got here and how we could adapt and improve to avoid this outcome. This is Spaces Podcast, where we aim to elevate the appreciation and understanding of the spaces we occupy every day. 
Hello, my name is Demetrius, and you're listening to Spaces Podcasts. About 71% of the Earth's surface is water covered, so it may seem like there's no shortage of water on the planet, but when you break it down, 97% of that water is too salty to drink, 2% is fresh water, but it's frozen, and only 1% is fresh water that's actually accessible. As populations increase and climate changes, access to that 1% is becoming an increasing concern. Roughly 90% of the world's population is located less than 10 kilometers or 6 miles from a freshwater source. Historically, civilizations that harness water thrived, and those that didn't, failed. As far back as 2000 BC, ancient Greece and India had writings that recommended water treatment methods. There was an understanding of heat to purify it and sand and gravel to filter it. Interestingly, not much was known about microorganisms or contaminants. The main motivation for purification was taste. In the following 2,000 short years, civilization made significant strides in water treatment. There were also drainage systems, primarily intended to carry rainwater away from roofs and pavements. A notable example is the drainage system of ancient Rome called the Cloaca Maxima, or Great Sewer, which carried drainage water to the Tiber River. Built of stone, it is one of the oldest existing monuments of Roman engineering. After 1500 BC, the Egyptians discovered the principle of coagulation, a process where they applied the chemical alum for suspended particle settlement, but we'll come back to this process later. Sometime after 500 BC, Hippocrates invented the practice of sieving water, a method to separate the coarse material and trapping sediments that caused bad tastes or odors. Between 300 to 200 BC, Rome built its first aqueducts, and Archimedes invented the water screw, a large screw inside a hollow pipe that pumps up water from lower water bodies to higher land. Roman aqueducts, which were actually first built by the Assyrians, were structures that could carry water from one place to another. In Rome, these structures were large undertakings, more than 400 kilometers or 248 miles, and took over 500 years to complete. Most of the aqueducts were underground to prevent pollution and supplied over 1 million cubic meters or 254 million gallons of water daily. After the fall of the Roman Empire, many aqueducts were destroyed by enemy forces and the method was no longer applied. The Middle Ages or Dark Ages from 500 to 1500 AD lacked sophistication, scientific innovations, and experiments. There was little progress in urban drainage or sewage. Toilets were connected to cesspools, which were rarely emptied and overflowed. 
Most wastes were simply dumped into the gutters to be flushed through the drains by floods. Needless to say, this was also a period where diseases like cholera, dysentery, malaria, flu, typhoid, smallpox, and leprosy were common. By the 1600s, there was a resurgence of exploration and innovation in water treatment. There were early attempts at desalination, a process to convert salt water to drinking water, and the microscope was invented, allowing for the discovery and study of microorganisms in water. In the 1700s, the first water filters for domestic application made of wool, sponge, and charcoal were applied. In 1804, the first actual municipal water treatment plant designed by Robert Tom was built in Scotland. This water treatment was based on slow sand filtration and horse and cart distributed water. Some three years later, the first water pipes were installed. Shortly after, in 1854, behind a cholera epidemic that spread through water, it was discovered that good taste and smell alone does not guarantee safe drinking water. Water would require further purification, leading governments to install municipal water filters. Through further development and research, it would take until the 1940s before drinking water standards were applied to municipal drinking water. In 1972, the Clean Water Act was passed in the United States. Two years later, the Safe Drinking Water Act was formulated. The general principle in a developed world was now that every person had the right to safe drinking water. To provide that right, it also became necessary to treat or purify wastewater to some degree before disposal. The construction of centralized sewage treatment plants began in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, principally in the United Kingdom and the United States. Instead of discharging sewage directly into a nearby body of water, it was first passed through a combination of physical, biological, and chemical processes that remove some or most of the pollutants. Wastewater treatment plants are large, complex facilities, easily identified by the series of large circular concrete tanks. Those are typically the clarifiers, depending on the size of the, the treatment plant. You can see often a, a few of them together. Those are the clarifiers. And the, the, the blade is sometimes to skim off material from the top, but it's part of a larger structure on the bottom, which is think of like a, uh, a squeegee. And so uh, think of a squeegee going all the way around that very, very slowly so as to not mix the water and, and thus negate the process, right? Because uh, you want it to settle and sort of relax all these solids with the bottom. So it, it essentially very, very slowly wipes the bottom and moves all of the solids that floated to the bottom into the center and then goes to the process separately. To understand more about these facilities and their processes, I spoke with a friend of mine, Rory Harnish, who is a licensed professional engineer in the state of California, currently working as a project engineer managing capital improvement projects for a Southern California water district. Formerly, he worked at firms inspecting, managing, and constructing water and wastewater facilities, so he was a great contact to help provide some insight. Water treatment is, uh, if I can boil it down to uh, one or, or a few sentences, is the method or process that we have designed to turn groundwater, rainwater, uh, water from wells, streams, rivers, lakes into safe potable water. 
So when people say uh, drinking water, potable water is uh, safe for human consumption. And then on the back end of that, it's safely disposing of used water, correct? Yeah, and, and that, that could be, like you said, safely disposing of it or converting it into drinkable, safe water. So you can convert used toilet water, right, into drinkable yeah. water in some cases? Yes, uh, in some cases, yes. Uh, that, that always tends to, uh, to irk people when they hear that. In, in some instances, not this isn't straight across the board, but in some instances, the water that leaves your home can sometimes eventually become, through many, many processes, uh, regulated processes, I should say, become safe drinking potable water. It can basically make the round trip back into your tap. Yeah, that's uh, hard to wrap <laughs> your brain around. It is. It is. And, and, you know, and uh, I always think of my first reaction upon hearing that uh, way, way back when. Um, it's a lot to take in. Right? You, you think, wait, that's, no, that's dirty water. But uh, if you were to see the process and see the entire process from start to finish, it's a long one, but uh, it does get cleaned up. <laughs> yeah. It is safe to drink. I mean, we're doing it now. <laughs> yeah. Can you give like a high level description of what the process of water treatment is and how that gets from point A to B? So it, it's, uh, it, it's, not always a straight A to B. Uh, there, there's a couple of different paths, and so I'll, I'll try to cover those as best as possible. I'll start with wastewater. So uh, as the water leaves your home uh, or commercial facilities, facilities, whatever it may be, uh, it goes through the, like a wastewater treatment plant. And uh, to give just, like I said, a brief overview, there are typically three types of treatments that it goes through in succession, primary, secondary, and tertiary. And essentially the water will go through a, a long process of separating, continual separation uh, of the solids and liquids, and finer and finer separation processes. So primary process generally are just big bar streams to separate the larger solids that, that collect in, in headworks facilities and influent pump station facilities, the beginnings of the wastewater treatment plants. And sometimes you can, they can go to in these giant round tanks called clarifiers. And so what these do is essentially let the water sit in the tank unimpeded and allow the heavier objects to fall to the bottom. And those get separated and uh, there's a whole solids treatment process, solids handling process that's separate from the liquid process. The secondary, uh, which, is, which is my favorite, is uh, more of the biological process. And that's where uh, it gets kind of, kind of interesting because that's where uh, we introduce air and bacteria, as odd as it sounds, we introduce bacteria into the, the wastewater. Uh, and it's a special kind of bacteria. We, uh, we like to call them bugs. And so what these bugs do is with the air, they have a, uh, sorry, a metabolic process that will further break down any of the solids that are in the water. They're left over from the primary process. Once that's done, uh, it's further separated. And oftentimes it can go back into a clarifier, depending on the, uh, the process, to just let it sit and, again, allow the solids to settle to the bottom. Finally, uh, the tertiary process is, if you were to imagine, a giant cylinder that has sand and then sometimes charcoal filtering to further separate any of the really fine materials that were not taken away by the secondary and primary processes. 
sand filters, uh, and then sometimes it can go through uh, a disinfection. So think of a, a big tank that's got a serpentine channel. And so you'll essentially dump in uh, a fixed amount of chlorine and let it sit in the water and sort of mix in the water for, an ex for a minimum amount of time, what is deemed necessary by the government. And that will oftentimes either produce recycled water or in some cases, uh, potable water, if, if it can go further treatment. From there, those can sometimes, depending on uh, certain circumstances, either be, like I said, turned into recycled water for irrigation, can be released in ocean outfalls, if you're near the coast, kind of like we are, or it can be injected into underground wells to uh, let Mother Nature do some of the final cleaning. So that's wastewater. And so um, potable water, uh, if there's a separate water treatment plant, not a wastewater plant. Oftentimes this water can be gathered from underground wells, from lakes, rivers, streams. And it goes through uh, about five processes. The first one is called flocculation. Flocculation is where we inject specific chemicals that will take any solid that's found in that water and they will attract each other and clump into larger and larger groups. Uh, after that process is done, it goes through sedimentation. And think of, uh, think of something similar to where the clarifiers for the wastewater process, where it essentially sits in a large circular square uh, tank for an extended period of time, and those heavier objects from the flocculation process will fall to the bottom and scraped away and separated and treated separately. So after that, it goes through a, a similar, like the, like the tertiary process I mentioned for wastewater, into a filtration process, again, using a, a sand and charcoal filters. And those, again, remove the finer materials before it goes into disinfection. And that can be chlorine, uh, there's uh, UV, there's a couple different uh, technologies, but it becomes disinfected. Uh, and then it's ready for human consumption. So at that point, it's either stored or, and or distributed through uh, reservoirs, pipelines, and then eventually goes back into your tap. This century, Water consumption has increased sevenfold, but it is our inefficient use that is the biggest concern. Daily use of brushing teeth, washing hands, and toilet usage only make up 8% of water usage per year. Most of the water goes into industry use at 22% and agriculture at 70% for the food and products that we use. For example, Southern California uses over 2 trillion gallons of water a year to grow alfalfa for cattle. In some cases, there's just water wasted from poorly maintained systems. Mexico City loses close to half of its drinking water to leaky pipes. American drinking water supplies are among the safest in the world, but in 2014, Flint, Michigan began to discover how fragile that assumption was. My wife and I went to a show at the Whiting Theater, and I remember using the bathroom at the intermission, and this was right at the beginning of all this. So I turned on the faucet at the theater, and it's just like blowing, just running brown, like super brown, rusty water. And I was it's like, wow, that's crazy to think about. And, and that was really the eye-opening kind of beginning. That's Kurt Nicewinder, a local architect licensed in the state of Michigan an active contributor to his community who utilizes his training to serve on advisory committees and provides pro bono services for community improvement projects with Habitat for Humanity and the University of Michigan Flint. 
Kurt shared his experience through the water crisis. Flint is the home of where General Motors was founded, uh, obviously a very big automotive town all across Michigan. But, you know, Flint was really where they had a huge, you know, middle class base that was built on building cars and building parts that went into cars. And as a non-native, you know, looking from the outside until I moved here, you would hear on the news as they, you know, they would shut down factories as a lot of production, you know, moved overseas and out of out of the country. So Flint really was hit hard by the demise of the factory jobs. The biggest impact of that is really um, what people kind of call Buick City, but it's this entire swath of downtown, which I think it's like about 800 acres of now flat slabs of concrete that used to be multiple factory buildings for GM. And there was another supplier, Delphi, and then there was a Chevrolet site, all all in the city limits that have been totally flattened. And and with that went all the jobs and, and the population. So very similar, you know, just like in Detroit, you know, there is this massive decline in population and that led to uh, abandonment of buildings and abandonment of neighborhoods. And so at the last census, I think Flint was about 100,000. And at its peak was over just over 200,000 population. So, you know, it, it dec- declined drastically. And so Michigan state legislature created a law that allowed the governor to appoint a financial manager to a city or a school district or other large uh, governing body if they're consistently not meeting their annual sort of zero balance budget, right? So if they're not balancing a budget and they're showing repeated signs of financial stress, the governor is allowed to appoint a financial manager, which essentially removes the power of the mayor and the city council from any financial decision-making process uh, of the city. So, you know, it could be perceived as a, a very sort of egregious overstep against democracy, right? Because the, the the emergency financial manager is not elected official by the citizens. They are appointed by the governor based on a criteria set by the governor. So at the time of the, the water crisis, I think Flint had at least, they were onto their second emergency financial manager. Um, so there, there already had been a, a sort of building mistrust between citizens and government officials, especially the mayor's office, city council. And then now, you know, you introduce the the governor's office with uh, the emergency financial manager. So this this sort of trust issue uh, really uh, came to a head with the water crisis. Once the citizens started to read about the decisions are not being made necessarily in the best interest of the citizens, but in the the chasing of a bottom line. And when, when, when things really kicked off was when the emergency financial manager decided to, for the sake of trying to cut the city's budget and reduce their overall debt uh, burden, they, they moved from the Detroit water supply to reusing the Flint River as the water supply, which the big difference there is that the water the makeup of of the river water from the Flint River 
is different than the Detroit supply, which comes off of uh, Lake Huron. So another bad move of the automotive industry is it's primarily like factory site, industrial sites is there's this chemical compound or compounds that exist that are the acronym is PFOS or PFAS. And these PFOS chemicals, once they get into the groundwater and then they get into the waterways, so anything that is drinking the water, animals and humans alike, you're starting to see really drastic effects at very small, this is the big problem, is at a very small doses. Uh, so even think like under 10 parts per trillion, it's seeing uh, connections to cancer uh, and then also defects in animals and and things like that and uh like for example the the buick city site here in in flint uh, in the past year or so they've been begun testing for pfas and they were discovering up to 40,000 parts per trillion all over that site and that whole site is draining right into the flint river and it has been for decades and so that decision to switch to the flint river was not necessarily something like, uh, you know, flipping a light switch, right? It's just transferring the the service or the source of the water. Uh, a lot of all these uh, um, reactions then took place and started stripping away the the lead or the the phosphorus lining inside the water service lines. And many of them in the city of Flint and other uh, legacy cities or Rust Belt cities in the country uh, have lead service lines. And so that phosphorus coating was separating the lead line from the water source itself and, you know, basically created a protective layer. So a lot of this, this sort of science stuff is what we learned after the fact, but, you know, it it can be very confusing to residents and businesses in the city uh, to try and understand, right, when the country really never thought of you know, where their water was coming from, right? I mean, we're a first world country, so we all perceive that we have the cleanest, freshest, pure supply of water. But in reality, it, what it exposed is this huge learning process that, you know, all of the infrastructure in the country is aging. So, you know, the citizens of Flint were really the first in the country to really have to learn about what's going on with the composition of the water. And and where the source is and and how it's treated. For more than a century, the Flint River served as an unofficial waste disposal site from many local industries that sprouted along its shores, from carriage and car factories to meatpacking plants and lumber and paper mills. The waterway also received raw sewage from the city's waste treatment plant, agricultural and urban runoff, and toxics from leaching landfills. The water subsequently became highly corrosive. The move to use it as a water source was categorically a horrific decision. Furthermore, inadequate treatment and testing of the supply allowed for the corrosive water to damage the aging pipes, leaching lead from those pipes into the water supply of thousands of homes. The presence of the lead would lead to a series of water quality and health issues for Flint residents. The water supply switch coincided with an outbreak of Legionnaire's disease that killed 12 and sickened at least 87 people between June 2014 and October 2015. Complaints mounted but were chronically ignored by officials. 
the foul-smelling, discolored, and off-tasting water that was piped into Flint homes for 18 months was causing skin rashes, hair loss, and itchy skin. Later, studies revealed doubling, and in some cases tripling, of the incidence of elevated blood lead levels in children from the contaminated water. Only through the determined, relentless efforts of the Flint community with the support of doctors, scientists, journalists, and citizen activists, did this severe mismanagement come to light. In early 2016, a coalition of citizens and groups sued the city and state officials in order to secure safe drinking water for Flint residents, demanding proper testing and treatment of water for lead and the replacement of all the city's lead pipes and free water distribution centers or a robust filter installation and maintenance program. In November 2016, a federal judge ordered the implementation of door-to-door delivery of bottled water to every home without a properly installed and maintained faucet filter, and later in March 2017, required the city to replace the city's thousands of lead pipes with funding from the state and guaranteeing further funding for comprehensive tap water testing, a faucet filter installation and education program, free bottled water through the following summer, and continued health programs to help residents deal with the residual effects of Flint's tainted water. Uh, Yes, so they started a pipe replacement program focusing first on the residences. And they started um, with using a really clever, I think, algorithm that the University of Michigan Flint, along with the Virginia Tech professor that really helped unearth this crisis uh, as far as bring the awareness to the, the issue. Uh, and they, they did a, a survey of all of the, they tried to collect all of the data on, on water pipes and their age in the city of Flint. And then they created a, a, a kind of algorithm that helped them decide where to target replacements and very early on they were hitting i think like in the 90 percent success rate as far as discovering lead pipes right because a lot of the city records were uh, very uh, sparse and they were missing a lot so they're really kind of doing an educated guess and that led to a really really high replacement rate which was really exciting and then over the course of years and then um transitioning in mayors in the city uh, office so there you know was a lot of changes in decision making process through two different mayors and as we came away from emergency financial management as well so there's these steps to regaining control in the city and and as those steps happened we saw more action in these pipe replacements while the situation at flint is improving with lead levels remaining below the federal action level, it is important to note that the federal action level for lead is merely an administrative trigger for remediation by the water utility. Health authorities agree that there is no safe level of lead in water. To protect our water supplies, it is crucial that we upgrade our nationwide water infrastructure, prioritizing the replacement of an estimated 6.1 million lead service pipes. Worldwide, as viewed by experts in the field, the top 10 methods to address the rising crisis are holistic management of ecosystems, improve policy and regulation, community-based governance, 
and partnerships, improved rainwater harvesting systems, energy-efficient desalination plants, appropriate water pricing, improved irrigation and smart agricultural practices, recycling wastewater, innovative new conservation techniques, and education. In the end, changes in consumer behavior will have the biggest impact. Water is a valuable and fragile resource that many have become so accustomed to that we allow it to be polluted and wasted as water scarcity drives rising conflicts around the world. As a reminder, it is estimated by 2040 most of the world won't have enough water to meet demand year-round. Humans can adapt, but it is critical that we recognize this crisis before it's too late. That's all for this episode, but keep listening for a sneak peek of our next episode. This show is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. You can help support what we're doing here by leaving a five-star rating and a review on your preferred podcasting app. It helps others find us, and your support is the only way that this show grows. And don't forget to connect with us through our Facebook community, Instagram, and see the random thoughts and articles that we share on Twitter and LinkedIn. But before you go, next time on Spaces Podcasts. You know, I think that I think that physical spaces that are controlled by brands can be used for things that may not even be products. Like there are some examples that we've started to see of brands charging money to gain admission to what might have used to have been called a retail store. Like one hmm. of the one of the spaces that we've had a lot of success with is a, a group called the Slumu Institute in Soho, and they're basically a slime experiential center for slime, right? But it is an amazing <laughs> funnel into their store, which is Soho storefront primo retail on Broadway. But really what that's, you know, 80% or so of the square feet are used as a place for people to pay entrance and play with stuff. And thank you again for spending some time with us. Talk soon. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host Patrick McLaney, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's 
office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.